being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's Word, whatever format you have it, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Genesis 22, as we come to this mountain peak in the storyline of Scripture. I'm going to read verses 1 to 19 of Genesis 22. Let's give our attention to the word of the Lord this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to heaven from him and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Thus far the reading God's word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd be kind and gracious to us in this moment, in this occasion, on hearing this word to grant us the illumination and understanding of your spirit so that we can see the riches and depths and beauty of this text that it might grip our hearts and shape our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Abraham and Isaac are on this journey in this passage, and as they're ascending up Mount Moriah, so we have now come to ascending the climactic moment in the story that God has been writing through the life of Abraham. This is the climax of the story. And the heart of this climactic story in Abraham's life, comes in that heart-piercing exchange between father and son in verses 7 and 8. 
So father and son are walking up the hill alone to make an offering to the Lord. And it's something that they've likely done together countless times since Isaac has been born. Because Isaac notices that an essential piece of the burnt offering is not with them. It's missing. So he first addresses his father with that respectful, affectionate title. He says, my father. I don't know about you, but whenever I walk through the front door of my house and I'm greeted by my children with that great and honorable title of daddy, my soul fills with joy. It's one of the, the best. I just leave the house just so I can come in and experience that. And yet, when Abraham is addressed in this occasion as my father, his soul is not filled with joy. It's only compounded with sorrow and agony because of the occasion that he's walking up that hill for. And as if broken out of a sorrowful stupor, Abraham responds with like affection. He says, here I am, my son. My son is such a simple and short phrase for Abraham to say, and yet it is one that, unlike for most, it carries a massive significance for him at this moment. My son, for whom I've struggled for and waited for for so long, my son whom the Lord miraculously gave to me and Sarah, my son whose arrival filled us with the joy of laughter, my son on whose shoulders rests the hope of my future and the hope of the nations, my son on whom God's promise depends and now whose life God demands. It is that son who then says to his father, I see that we have the fire. I see that we have the wood. But where's the most important piece, father? Where is the lamb? Little did Isaac know that he was the first person to raise the question that will dominate the storyline of the whole Old Testament and will not be answered until you turn the page of your Bible into the New Testament. Every yearly Passover every annual celebration of the Day of Atonement, every daily walk to the temple to hand a Levitical priest an animal for the burnt offering was in a way asking Isaac's question over and over again. Where is the lamb? Where is that true and perfect lamb whose sacrifice will finally be sufficient for us, whose, whose cleansing of us will be permanent and not temporary or just a type and shadow, whose death will actually give us real life and whose innocence and righteousness can actually become ours rather than just representative. Where is that lamb? As Isaac was not aware of the full magnitude of his question, so Abraham was not aware of the full grandeur of his answer. For in his answer, Abraham gives us one of the clearest and most precious proclamations of the gospel found in all the Old Testament. The shadow of the Savior is cast over every page of the Old Testament, if you have eyes to see. And here, the Savior's shadow comes into clearest view in the Old Testament. Abraham says to his son, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. His answer is, is not deflection and it's not deception. It is faith-filled gospel declaration. Because with these words, Abraham is not just acting as father. He's acting as prophet as well. His words of fatherly reassurance to his son are also a prophetic utterance of gospel anticipation. God himself will provide the lamb. That is the heart of the story, and it's the heart of the gospel. 
as well. So what we're going to see in Genesis 22 is this. Through this unique test of Abraham's faith, the Lord displays to us the heart of the gospel. He himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice so that you can live. That's what this story is about. So let's unpack it as we walk through the events of Genesis 22 by first looking at the test which the Lord administers to Abraham. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 22. After these things, so after the birth of Isaac, the sending away of Ishmael, after these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, three days journey in the north, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So immediately, you as the reader who is looking at this, you're given a clue that Abraham is not given. He is being tested by God. Abraham just gets the command. We're told about the test as well. So why would God test Abraham? Well, to answer that, you have to answer the broader question. What is God's purpose in testing any of his children, his people? Well, in the course of your schooling, I'm guessing, you probably had to take many exams, midterm exams, final exams, entrance exams, standardized exams, all those awful exams you had to take. And what was their purpose? The purpose of an exam was to reveal and disclose how well you had studied and paid attention and how much you knew. Exams reveal and disclose things. So in a similar way, one of God's purposes in testing his children is to bring them into situations that reveal the quality of their faith and the depth of their character. So tests reveal. But even more important than that, God's testing refines and strengthens faith and character. When I was preparing for my ordination exams so that I could, I could stand up here and yell at you, just over seven years ago, I took practice test after practice test. Anyone who could talk, I would hand them my study guide exam and say, quiz me, quiz me. Because I knew that being drilled over and over again would further impress in me what I was studying. It would further solidify me what I, what I was, had to be tested on later. Or to use a different illustration, when a precious metal like gold is placed in a fire, the purpose of the fire is not just to reveal the quality of the gold. It's actually to refine the quality of it as well. So there's dross and mineral waste that is collected on that precious metal over time that must be removed for the quality and durability of that gold to last even longer. But most important of God's purposes in testing us is his desire to increase our reliance and dependence on him. So he doesn't want to just reveal the quality of our faith and refine it. But even more so, he wants to further increase our reliance upon him alone. Moses speaks of this purpose to the the wilderness generation that's now coming out of the wilderness and about to enter into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 8, he says this, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you. And he let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So God's tests, in a way, are divine shock therapy that are meant to awaken us from our delusions of self-reliance and to instill in us a deeper conviction 
that his grace alone is sufficient for us, for we are weak and he alone is strong. We are needy and he alone is all sufficient. We lack, he supplies. So why does God test us? Well, let me allow John Newton's famous hymn on this question to answer it for you. He said this, Lord, why these tests? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your child to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for growth and faith. These tests and trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. That's why God tests us. But we have to know that though we are tested like Abraham as God's children, we are not tested in this way like Abraham. This is a unique, unrepeatable test that God providentially brings Abraham through. We are all tested in our faith, but only Abraham is tested in this way. And the reason I bring this up is because it is so important to make distinctions in the Bible between commands that are particularly given in unique situations that are unrepeatable and universal commands like love your neighbor. That is not a particular command. That is a universal command that we're all to obey. But this is unique. And that's important because many people would use this text to bash the Bible, to deny its credibility, to show that this is an old, archaic book. So, for example, if someone tries to play Bible-bashing skeptic with you and says, you know, if, if God asked you to sacrifice your child like he did Abraham, would you just go ahead and obey that? And here's how you should answer such person. Absolutely not. You raise a false hypothetical question because I am not Abraham. Abraham stood in a unique relationship to God because he was given a unique promise that served a unique purpose in God's unfolding plan of redemption. And so given those factors, I can clearly see that you don't understand Genesis 22 rightly because it is a unique and unrepeatable kind of test. And as you continue this imaginary dialogue with this imaginary skeptic, should add this. You also falsely assume that God intended for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But in reality, God intended to test Abraham with a command to sacrifice Isaac. That is a distinction with a significant difference. The purpose of the test was not for God to see if Abraham would in fact sacrifice his son, but for God to show Abraham and us that he will provide the sacrifice himself instead of Isaac. Would you like to repent and believe in Jesus? That's how you should end the dialogue. (laughs) Proper biblical interpretation is critical when traversing the landscape of a text like Genesis 22 because it helps us make important distinctions. Like Abraham, God tests us to reveal and refine our faith and increase our reliance on him. But unlike Abraham, we will never go through a test like this, because we do not stand in the unique relationship with God with the unique promise at this unique moment. Another reason is that this, the ultimate sacrifice from where we stand has already been given. No more sacrifice is needed, but that's getting ahead of myself. And so this unique test of Abraham, which is brought to him, is one in which the command of God, sacrifice your son, your only son, seems impossible for Abraham to reconcile with the promise from God. Through Isaac shall the nations be blessed. So what Abraham is being tested with is, how do I honor God's command and how is God going to keep his promise? How do I reconcile these two things? So that's the tension that is rising in Genesis 22 that moves us to our next point. 
Does Abraham have the faith, the faith to trust that God can do the impossible, to reconcile the command with the promise? Well, let's consider the faith which the Lord strengthens. Looking at the life of Abraham, we have seen something that anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time knows by experience. The progress and growth of the Christian life is never a nice and neat linear line. You, you cannot chart it on a graph in a nice way where your math teacher would give you a good score. It never looks like that. There's breakthroughs, there's victories, there's displays of boldness, and then there's lapses in judgment. There's backsliding into old sin. There's exercising old folly. There's great strides and great stumblings. You could picture it like a child who's learning to walk for the first time. As any parent knows who watches that child walk, there's, there's much trepidation in watching that child. There's much joy in new progress as new steps are made, but then there's many, many tears that are shed when the head hits the tile for the third time. That is the life of faith. But then when you step back and you, and you zoom out and you kind of see it from the panoramic perspective, there are times in the Christian life when you get that view and you know that with all the strides and stumblings that you've made, there's real growth. There's actual change. There is progress that by God's grace you have made. So I think, to borrow from John Newton again, he summarizes this thought very well when he says this. We are not what we ought to be, but we are not what we once used to be. And by the grace of God, we are what we are. That is the great summary of the Christian life. Not what we once used to be, but not yet what we ought to be. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. And how true this is of Abraham. He has struggled in the faith, and yet here he displays a great strength of faith. And there's three pieces of evidence of that in this text. The first is in verse 3 of Genesis 22. So with all the agony of God's command weighing on him, look how he responds in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Command and immediate, definite obedience. There's no indication that he doubts, that he debates God. There's no indication that even what he did when he heard of God's plans for Sodom and Gomorrah, that he humbly inquires of him and, and wrestles with him. 50, Lord, what about 45? No, he simply obeys. As in Genesis 12, God gave this command, go to the land I'll show you. Leave behind your past, leave behind all that you've known. Now God is calling him to go and trust him with his future which is wrapped up in Isaac, his son, and he goes in obedience. Second piece of evidence is in verse 4 and 5 of Genesis 22. Look there with me. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So he's been traveling from Beersheba to the north. He, he finally sees the mountains that God is calling him to go to after three days. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. Did you catch the bold logic and the unflinching confidence in Abraham's faith when he speaks to the servants that are with him? My son and I will go up there and my son and I will come back to you. When he says that, he's not lying to cover up his intentions, nor is he throwing logic and reason to the wind and just stepping out in the great leap of faith into the darkness. You think of that scene in uh, Indiana Jones movie, I think it's, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of Doom, I forget where. He has to step blindly out onto that pillar. Many people think that's what faith is. That is a sad and sorry definition of faith. 
Faith is not the blind, illogical leap into the dark or believing in your heart what you know in your head cannot be true. On the contrary, faith, like Abraham has, is a bold logic that lives in the light of the truth of who God is. Faith is embracing with the heart what you know to be true of God in your head. Abraham's words to his servants flow from the bold logic that God has been faithful to him all these years. And it is impossible for God not to fulfill his promises. Abraham's words spring from a daring confidence that God can work wonders. He gave us Isaac when there was nothing humanly possible for that to happen. And surely he can give us back Isaac when I see no human way for that to happen. And the reason I say that is because here's what it says in Hebrews 11 about Abraham. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac, the son of promise, because he considered, he reasoned that God was even able to raise him from the dead. This is not a blind leap into the dark, but a bold laying hold of God and what he knows about him. Third piece of evidence of Abraham's strength and faith is in verses seven and eight. We've touched on this briefly, but I want to look at it again. Look there with me at verse seven and eight. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, say, here I am, my son. Say, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Again, not deception or deflection, but bold logic, laying hold of God, because Abraham reasons that given the tension between command and promise, God must provide a substitute. It's the only way. And given the character of God, he reasons that God surely will provide the lamb for the substitute. It's the only way. Abraham is seeing in shadow form the substance of the gospel's logic. For Isaac to live, for the promise to be kept, for the nations to be blessed and redeemed, someone has to take Isaac's place. There's no other way, and only the Lord could be the one to provide that substitute. Oh, how sweet it would be for God to grant us such faith like Abraham's. One that's not marked by an illogical leap in the dark, but a bold logic that lays hold of what we know to be true of God. One that as one missionary said, expects great things from God and attempts great things for God. You know, even in seeing this bold faith that we often lack, you should be encouraged and hopeful because this same Abraham that is expressing this bold faith is the same one that we've been following all along who has not always expressed this bold faith in the Lord. But he has the same faithful God that we do, who is faithful to work in us and on us, to shape us and renew us after his image, to give us the faith that we lack for his good pleasure. Now as we move to the final scene of the story, the question that now carries the drama forward is this. Is Abraham right? Is he correct in saying that the Lord himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice? Let's consider now the sacrifice which the Lord provides. Notice in verse 9 that Isaac willingly complies with his father's plan. Look at verse 9 there with me. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. The reason I say that this is Isaac's willingness and obedience 
is because consider Abraham's age at this point. He is well beyond the days of youth. He is old, old. His youthful strength and vigor is gone. Isaac is nearly a young man at this point, probably 12 to 16 years old, somewhere in there. He is nearly at the height of his youthful energy and strength. He could outrun his father. He could overpower his father. Abraham is no match for Isaac if he struggles. And yet, every indication in this text, despite the agony of the situation, is that he willingly submits to this most painful act. And then in verse 10, it says that Abraham does what we could hardly imagine. He raises the knife to slaughter his son. And think back to when Isaac was born. When Isaac was just eight days old, the joy of Abraham and Sarah's laughter is still kind of ringing in the air. Abraham used a knife on Isaac to to circumcise him. He used a knife to apply the sign of promise to the son of promise. And now the knife is once again suspended above his son Isaac, the son of promise. But this time it's not just to take a portion of skin. It's to take his son's life. So he thinks. But it's just at this moment that the voice of the angel of the Lord breaks in and stops Abraham in his tracks. Look at verse 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the angel of the Lord shows up once again in the story of Abraham. It's that mysterious figure the pre-incarnate Christ who was there to announce the birth of Isaac that Sarah laughed at, who is now announcing the deliverance of Isaac, the sparing of Isaac. And then he opens Abraham's eyes in verse 13 to see this. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So once again, the Lord has brought life out of death, as it were, in Abraham's story. For Sarah and Abraham, it was life out of the death of the barren womb. That They were beyond the years. Their bodies were as good as dead, Paul says in Romans 4. And yet he gave them the life of Isaac, their son. And now here, it's once again as if God has brought Isaac back from the dead. That walking up that mountain, he thought he was going to lose his son. And now walking back down, his son is alive again. God has provided a ram to die so that Isaac might live. He's provided a substitute so that he might sustain his promise. And this very place where this happened will now have massive ongoing significance in the rest of the nation's history. Look at verse 14 with me. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it's on this mount, on this site, in this place, that Solomon, the son of David, who's going to build the temple, comes and he says in 2 Chronicles 3.1, this is the place that we're going to build the house of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So the site of the temple was a constant memorial Echoing throughout all the generations that truth, the Lord will provide. Isaac was spared so that God's people could live. And every day that an Israelite would go to the temple, 
that they would offer a burnt offering. They would take their animal, bring it to the Levitical priest. They would lay their hands on the animal, signifying the transfer of their guilt onto the innocent lamb. They were reminded that something must die in order for me to live. Something innocent must be slaughtered so that I can be spared. Just as God provided a sacrifice for Isaac in his stead. Well, the scene comes to a close in verses 15 to 18. And these are the last recorded words of the Lord spoken to Abraham. Look at verse 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the final words of the Lord spoken to Abraham are an echo and a repeat of the very first word that the Lord spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. And what these final words do is they, they take up every theme, every major moment in Abraham's life, and they tie it up together and concisely and beautifully summarize it and present it to us. This is the promise that is being passed on now from Abraham to Isaac. The promise is sustained and reaffirmed because by faith, Abraham went to offer up Isaac, and yet the Lord provided a ram in his stead. But there's one final lingering question of this story that the Old Testament never fully answers. And it's the one that Isaac asked. Where is the lamb? Yes, an animal is provided. But can the blood of bulls and goats and lambs take away the sin of a man's heart? Where is the true and perfect lamb that the Lord is going to provide? And when you open to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and John the baptizer is there in the Jordan, and he sees Jesus off in the distance walking to him, he answers the question, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's as if John's mind is filled with thoughts of Genesis 22 and the Passover sacrifice and the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. And he looks at Jesus and he says, here is what Abraham prophesied about, the lamb that the Lord himself will provide. And even Jesus answers this question for us in John 8, 56. He said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. It's as if when Abraham gave that prophecy to his son, he was looking through time and he was seeing John point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when you see Jesus as the true Lamb of God and you go back and read Genesis 22, the events become richer and brighter and more vibrant and glorious than when you first saw it. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, like Isaac, was dearly loved by his father. Isaac was was so dearly loved because they had waited so long. It was something that was given to them by miracle, something that they never expected. So they never, in a sense, you could say, took it for granted. They loved this child, your son, your only son whom you love. But consider Jesus. He was far more dearly loved by the father than Isaac could ever have been by Abraham. Abraham was a finite creature who had been a father for a finite amount of time and therefore was limited in his love. And yet the father's love for the son shatters the limit of time and degree. Eternity and infinity fill the love that exists between the heavenly father and his dearly beloved son. And you hear a glimpse of it break forth in Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. 
This is my son whom I love and I am well pleased with him. Never has greater affection for a son been shown by a father. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, like Isaac, was the father's one and only son. You heard it in Genesis 22 over and over again. Your son, your only son. Your son, your only son. Yes, Ishmael was the son through Hagar, but this is Abraham and Sarah's only son. This is the only son of promise. It all rests on him. And what do you hear in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. In Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. Jesus, the Lamb of God, like Isaac, was willingly obedient. Isaac unknowingly carries the wood up the mountain to the place where he is going to be sacrificed. Yet Jesus, knowingly, willingly, has the cross of his crucifixion placed on his back and willingly, obediently carries it up the mount of his crucifixion. As Isaac allowed himself to be bound and laid on the altar, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. If I wanted to, I could call legions of angels to destroy the Romans, to withstand any opposition to me. And yet he willingly allows himself to be laid on that cross and pierced for our transgressions. Jesus, the Lamb of God, like Abraham, was severely tested. Abraham was tested with trying to reconcile the command and the promise. How do these things come together? Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was tested to a point that no one has ever been tested before. In agony, he is sweating drops of blood as he contemplates the cross. And he says those same affectionate words that came from the mouth of Isaac. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. How can I, Father, who for all eternity have known only your love, now face the full fury of your justice and wrath? How can I, Father, have only known unbroken fellowship with you, now have your face turn away from me and be forsaken by you? My Father, yet not as I will, but as you will. Never was such an agonizing test ever given and never such great humility and willingness to pass it. But this is where the faint analogies end and the great contrast begins. Jesus, the Lamb of God, unlike Isaac, was not spared. Isaac is spared because one day God would send his own son and he would not spare him but give him up for us all. The angel of the Lord in Genesis 22 that stopped Abraham's knife from going to his son is that same one who in his incarnation now stands under the knife that will not stop. It will fall on him. A ram is offered up in Isaac's place, but there is no substitute for Jesus. He is alone. Because he is the only perfect and sufficient lamb, he must shed his blood, he must die so that you can live. So where is the lamb whose sacrifice is sufficient, whose cleansing is permanent, whose death gives us life and whose righteousness can become ours? He was once on a cross in Calvary, crying, it is finished, but he's there no longer. He was once laid in a garden tomb, but death could not contain him, so he's there no longer. Instead, he stands in heaven glorified with the marks of his sacrifice still being borne by him and shown by him for all eternity. And he is surrounded by the praise of the redeemed who are singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to ransom us from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and to make us a priest and a kingdom to our God 
Perhaps Abraham and Isaac standing there in glory, looking at the lamb, are there as father and son, and father saying to son, behold the lamb that the Lord himself has provided. Let's pray.